Greetings, dear listeners. This is another hopefully exciting edition of the Remnant Podcast. I'm Jonah Goldberg. This week's episode is brought to you by Casper. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. And from our close friend of this podcast, Senator Ben Sass's new book, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. More about that in a little bit as well. We're going to jump right into it. We have today someone that... so. When my book came out, when my fights with Rich Lowry about nationalism got kind of heated, people said I had to have – I've been I've been getting hectored by two different factions in America. Uh, one is the pro-Patrick Deneen faction, who I uh, uh, sort of debated um, last week at Notre Dame. And then the other faction was Yoram Hazoni, who is the author of The Virtue of Nationalism. And he is in the studio as we speak. Yoram, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to do something that happens all too rarely on book tours. I'm going to ask you the question that all authors want to get. What's your book about? <laughs> and then we'll lead it from there. Well, The Virtue of Nationalism is about, to begin with, it's about the moment that we live in, which is uh, a world in which from Brexit to Donald Trump to Italy and Eastern Europe and and Throughout the democratic world, there's a, a, a return to the demand for a responsive nation state or national state and to the transferring of authorities and powers of, of government to the European Union and, and, and other kind of global institutions. And I felt that, that this debate has been uh, somewhat lacking in, in, uh, in depth. I mean, it's certainly got a lot of noise to it. Yes. But, yeah. uh, and so, so I, I, I wrote a book which is uh, the best I could do to defend the uh, the, the the principle of uh, of a political order based on independent nations mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to a a unitary world order uh, under a single rule of law that would that would embrace all the nations, which has been more or less the policy of uh, both major political parties in the United States and the UK and and and, and most major parties in across Europe for almost a generation, I mean, since the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I think that's terribly dangerous and certainly the wrong direction. And without necessarily wanting to, you know, endorse specific political parties and candidates, but I think that the uh, the impulse to return the, the wor world order to an order of independent nations is exactly right. And so I wrote a book to, to try to defend that as best I could. Okay, so part of let, let I don't I don't want to sound like Jeremy Corbyn and say let's start in on the Jews, but um, your basic argument is that the proper conception of the nation state is biblically grounded. That God gives the state of Israel with specific borders and a specific set of obligations to the Israeli the, the, the Hebrews and and that model grounded in essentially. Ten Commandments and that biblically based morality is the fundamental unit of the international order um, as we as we understand it or as we should understand it. Right. Uh, that's right. In early, I'm not making as as you know, I'm not making an argument from authority. That, right. You know, because it says it in the Bible, therefore we need to do it. But um, but you wouldn't oppose that argument outright. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to put you in a corner or anything, but I mean, but you know, you're a believing Jew, and you know, there's. I, I, I'm I'm a believing Jew, but I'm I'm not an uh, uh, an quite an authority kind of guy. I mean, the, okay. that, that that'll take us into into my 
previous book, The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture, which is uh, uh, a little bit more historical and empirical than, okay. uh, th- than you know, listeners might necessarily be, be used to in, in, in people reading the Bible. But in any case, for the purpose of this discussion, mm-hmm. I, I think that the, the biblical view of a world of independent nations has to be able to stand um, – it has to be able to stand the test of empirical experience. It's not, you know, we have to do it because God says so. The question is, is this proposal that a world of independent nations is better than a world empire, than like a a, a kind of Roman empire or a British empire that's going to just take care of making sure peace and prosperity is available to all peoples in the world from from one center? Mm -hmm. Those two things are, you can say that Western political tradition is, is almost a seesaw between them, I mean, for for most of the most of the last couple thousand years, it's actually the the Roman imperial vision of uh, of a single law for all nations, right. which has dominated in you know in, in the form of uh, the Holy Roman Empire and and the idea of a, a universal Catholic Republic uh, and the Parliament of Man. Right. Right. Uh, also, I mean, it, it's also the the, the right the, the inspiration for for Napoleon and mm-hmm. it, it and in a. You know, in its own twisted, horrible way, it's also the inspiration for Hitler, right. um, so, and the communists, and and, right. and the communists who are building on on an older Rus- Russian idea of Russia as the th- as the Third Rome, which, right. which is ex- explicitly another another version of universal Roman Empire. So, in 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 the mix with all of these, you know, competing versions of of uh, of Roman imperialism. It's it, it's the the Jewish impulse, which has an effect on uh, various medieval peoples, the the French, the English, the, the the Poles, the Czechs. But it really comes into its own with uh, with Protestantism and especially with Calvinism and Anglicanism. It's the the force that actually allows Henry VIII uh, to to cut his ties from. Right. Uh, from from the Holy Roman Empire and the papacy. If, you know, it had just been, you know, about Anne Boleyn or whatever it was, he couldn't have gotten the the English on board with it. The reason the English were on board was because they were already nationalists. Right. And the English, the Dutch, the Scots, the the Swiss, uh, and to extent the French, all all of these are are peoples that are um, shaped by the alternative to... Roman Empire, which is uh, this this biblical vision of a single self determining nation. Obviously, I'm using modern language for it, but uh, but uh, as uh, as the Bible has it, you'll have your own king, your own prophets, mm-hmm. your, your your own priests, and borders that you're not allowed to cross. The God of Israel is the first, as far as we know, the first God in history to give borders to his own people and say. I'll punish, this far, no far. Right, I'll punish you if you cross them. Right. Whereas all the all the other gods in the Middle East said, you know, four corners of the earth, man. Let, right. Let's go. Right. No, um, so I, I just to get the drama started. I am extremely sympathetic to large parts of of your argument, and one of the things that I think is, which is an important distinction that you make that I want to flesh out later on in the conversation, is uh, you distinguish nationalism from neo nationalism, right? Which is Nationalism is grounded in, as you put it, it's grounded in tradition, in custom, a certain a certain amount of Hayekian trial and error that yields certain practices that fit the people and the land and all the rest. But why don't you explain why you think national the, the distinction that is often that I often emphasize 
in the American context, which I don't think works in other countries for reasons I'll get into, that the the the, the distinction between patriotism and nationalism you think is sort of a silly one or, or, or one that you're not going to go with. Am I right about that? I don't think it's anywhere near as helpful as people think it is. I mean, the word patriotism is uh, is almost always, in my experience, it's almost always used to refer to uh, to sentiments of loyalty that are or, or pride or love mm -hmm. that you have to your country. But that's not a political theory. I mean, if you say, you know, so what, what does patriotism have to say about somebody else's country? It, it, it doesn't say anything because it's mm -hmm. just a feeling. So here we're, we're, we're not talking, I, I'm not talking principally about feelings. I'm talking about um, a, a political theory. Mm -hmm. The question is, what's the best order for the world? Obviously, we don't have the, the power to influence it, but the, we're, we're trying to figure out uh, what kind of order has been historically most beneficial and could be most beneficial. And and so we're, we're, it's it's an argument across many nations. And so the, the word patriotism is completely irrelevant. The word nationalism has often been used as a synonym for patriotism, like, you know, as in Gandhi is an Indian patriot, patriot or, or an Indian nationalist. nationalist. Yeah. I mean, in, in that context, it, it, it just means the same thing. But But the term has also historically for often been used by intellectuals who are trying to figure out what does an order of nations look like and uh, why should we have an order of nations and and their nationalism is is a is a political theory and it, that's the only it's the only known word for that sure that and, and I, I do think one of the problems with the conversation is that we don't have the word countryism right which is sort of what you're getting at is that the world the, the, the irreducible units of the international order should be independent sovereign nations, right? Countries, right? And I, I find that to be utterly defensible in its own right. I have a bit of a softer spot in my heart for the Austro-Hungarian Empire than most, and we can talk about that. <laughs> but um, here's – okay, so but here's sort of – since we're here, um, in the American context, the reason – and I agree that you have to sort of – you sort of have to – load up and explain what you mean by your terms to get the point across because the words are so fungible and and so prone to various interpretations. It may be apocryphal, but there's this famous line that's attributed to William F. Buckley where he says, I'm as patriotic as anybody. Um, I'll, I salute the flag, celebrate the 4th of July, but there's not an ounce of nationalism in me. And the distinction there, whether he actually said it or not, I've always attributed to essentially this argument which you can trace back through you know, de Tocqueville, but also with in the modern era, sort of Seymour Martin Lipset about American exceptionalism. And that in America, for the same reason that, you know, was it Werner Sombart asked, you know, why is there no socialism in America? The answer was because we didn't have a feudal tradition. America doesn't have the same kind of nationalistic tradition that you're talking about because it's the first nation founded on essentially enlightenment principles, creedal principles. Now, I argue in my book that those principles are actually abstracted out principles that are drawn from the English tradition. And I'm, I'm very much a Whig in that sense, right? And I like that English tradition. The founding fathers didn't originally want independence. They wanted just to have their, their ancient English liberties as they saw them protected and they didn't feel it that way. <clears throat> but in America, there is this distinction between the sort of creedal enlightenment-based notion of, of neutral rules, of uh, a pluralistic society where um, uh, the, the government, the state is not bent 
to pick winners and losers ethnically, culturally, traditionally to a certain extent. And that's sort of the, the, the creedal notion of what America is. And then there's this nationalistic notion, which I would argue is something different, that often it's, it's not always ethno-nationalist, but it is, um, it is certainly centralizing and it's almost invariably statist. And it is rooted in a kind of populism that says there are real Americans and unreal Americans. And, and so I think while it can get too facile and glib, these are important distinctions to make. Where do you come down on all that? Well, it's a lot of things to come down on. Uh, let me start on the exceptionalism point where I, I think we can have a productive discussion, meaning I, I, I think there, there'll be some, some, some tension between our views. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's pretty natural for, nations to see themselves as exceptional. Mm -hmm. it, I mean, it's, it, it, it's almost an un, unwritten rule of, sure. uh, of, of, you know, by the time you're getting people to fight for independence, they are, um, you know, if, if it's not just something trumped up and it's something substantial and real as, as it often is and certainly was in the American case, then you, you don't just rally people, you, you, you rally ideas, you, 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 you create a, uh, a conscious um, self understanding of the country as being uh, of uh, uh, of the country as an expression of of the people of the mm -hmm. nation as being something unique and special. The, the Americans have a tremendously good case for it. But what kind of makes me freeze up sometimes when I hear people talk about American exceptionalism is that. There's some sometimes a kind of a jingoism about it, where there, there's an unwillingness to admit that uh, the the English are also exceptional, mm -hmm. oh, and, and that in a very different way the French are, mm -hmm. and and so so are the Arabs and the Jews and the Germans and, and 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 the Russians and so on, and I mean all of these peoples have have a very strong sense of exceptionalism. Yeah, I and, should I, I should you know. clarify this. I that's not how I mean exceptionalism. I don't mean exceptional like oh he's an exceptional student meaning he's better than other students, right? That is the way both Barack Obama and Donald Trump have taken the term American exceptionalism. I'm talking about the fact that America is just different. American exceptionalism, which very inconveniently is a term coined by Stalin, <laughs> um, is uh, uh, as an academic matter is you know w points to the fact that of industrialized Western countries, America was always wildly more religious than other Western countries. That part of American exceptionalism, we were more violent than other countries. There are good things that come with American exceptionalism, bad things that come with American exceptionalism. Um, it was that line that de Tocqueville has that the American is the Englishman left alone, right? Uh, they're just different. We are, uh, we form associations in ways that other countries don't, or at least we did until the last 30 years. And so I'm not, well, I agree with you. Lots of people bring in all sorts of jingoistic baggage to the notion of American exceptionalism. That's not what I'm doing. I'm saying that, uh, well, I will say that I, I don't like that we're more violent, but I like, American exceptionalism because this is my country and this is this is and I like its differentness than other countries and I think that's absolutely common to everybody else every every country thinks they're different than every other country and that they're special but American exceptionalism also means that we are this weird outlier among other countries and I think that's why the distinction between patriotism and nationalism which I agree with you probably means very very little in China or even Israel I think is is a useful distinction here in in America. In what way? Well, all right. So you have this. Um, you use the phrase neo nationalism, right? Which, uh, if I'm right, 
that's sort of more what Bannon and crowd are doing, right? And am I wrong about that? Uh, by, by neo-nationalism, I, I was talking about, you know, if you, <laughs> if you read a lot of the academic literature on nationalism, they're talking about something that began somewhere around the French Revolution okay. and is mostly happening in okay. the 19th century. And that that is much closer to being a, uh, I, I think, what we could call statism. I mean, okay. Okay. It, 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 it's not about the unique national traditions of uh, of the people religiously, constitutionally, and what it, it can contribute to the world. It's much more of a cookie-cutter kind of French revolutionary theory of the state where pretty much every state is the same. I mean, if you just look at the fact that Napoleon didn't have any problem uh, writing a, a new constitution for every country he conquered, right. he wrote them himself, right. uh, you know, with, with the small staff. And that that concept of all states are the same. All peoples are the same. Th that has quite a bit of influence in, uh, f f for, for example, uh, realist international relations where people actually think that Iraq is a nation because of the fact that there is such a state. So so I'm trying to – Okay. So was – were uh, I, Italian fascism and Nazism neo-nationalist or nationalist? I don't, I don't think that n Nazism by, – by my definitions, Nazism was – was not nationalist right. because because Hitler, it was imperial, right? Because hit because Hitler from you know already in Mein Kampf says that what's his goal? His goal is for the Germans to be uh, to be mistress of the globe and lord of the earth. Now, if Hitler, if his goal had been to unite all the German-speaking peoples under a single German national state and kick out everybody else, then I would have said that's an ugly, sickening, totally unnecessary, gratuitous nationalism. At mm. least, but it, it, at least it's it's a nationalism. But but if if the goal is to be mistress of the globe, that's not a nationalism. That's the opposite. Hitler had contempt, d despised the independent national state, and his whole whole political effort is aimed at. at Sweeping it away, so th th that is classical imperialism, and his models are are all imperialistic models. He has absolutely no sympathy for for an independent national state with borders. Okay, so we'll come back to that. But when you talk about nationalism, what is the other than the fact that it is grounded in tradition and custom? What is the objective moral content of nationalism? Is there are there nations that are grounded in tradition and custom that have coherent borders that aren't seeking to impose themselves on their neighbors that are nationalist but also evil. There certainly can be. I, I mean, th look, this is this is a. Um, uh, you, you mentioned Hayek before, so th think about this in in uh, as kind of an uh, uh, an argument that's in parallel with economic arguments that we're familiar with. What 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 is it that we appreciate about the market? We 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 tend to accept now that. That having multiple centers of power, many different competing centers of economic power, creates the possibility of uh, innovation because you have many different minds, sure. and in the competition, they you know they try to develop new things to in order to best best the competition, and that way we 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 progress. Whereas uh, a single center trying to figure it all out never has the information. It's it's you know it is a conceit, and in in the end, it leads to to oppression. So. The, I, I would say that almost the same argument applies to the political order that applies to the economic order. And we're, and, and we're familiar domestically with a certain version of it because that's the, the, the reason for the separation of powers mm -hmm. in, in a lot of traditional 
Anglo-American political theory is is just that you have different different centers and 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 they jealously guard one another. They're mm-hmm. competing with one another. So why why doesn't this apply to the world? I think it does. That if you're thinking about world order, then suddenly many of the many of the same people who would buy domestically or economic or in the economic sphere they come to 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 the to the world, and then they say, "Well, when it comes to the world, central planning, you know, is 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 a great idea." And fundamentally, the nationalist argument is saying, if you allow freedom of competition among independent nations, and you and and and, and you zealously guard that, then you'll get some good ones, and you get some bad ones. And I'm, I, I, you know, we, we can definitely talk about what we need to do about about the bad ones. I'm not against talking about it, but mm-hmm. the, but the fundamental principle is. Uh, that it's the competition that allows innovation mm-hmm. and and advancement, and we have this is not just a theory because it, uh, things that we like about uh, you know the things that we like about uh, uh, about modernity from limited government to the rotation of power within democracy mm-hmm. uh, to the, uh, the the culture of science and innovation. I mean, all the things that we cherish, at least you and I, I mm-hmm. think, cherish about modernity. Are born within from within the competition of independent nations in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, and and I I mean we don't have a single case. I mean not one example in human history of an imperial state whose idea is to govern many different nations and impose one order on 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 as much of the world as possible. We don't have a single case of such an empire that that developed ideas like limited government or 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 uh, con- concern for the the individual liberties of, you know, of all all of the citizens. Yeah, although Hayek and von Mises and those guys do emerge from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. <laughs> that tradition. I absolutely granted and 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 some of my criticism of Hayek and 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 Mises is that they 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 don't appreciate the contribution of uh, the independent national state to this yeah. competition. I mean, they're kind of kind of the uh, the authors of the blindness to the fact that we need competing nations and not just competing companies. But notice that the Austro-Hungarian Empire is imitating right that their economics is imitating English economics, mm-hmm. English and Dutch actually. Right. So. Uh, Yes, there are all sorts of wonderful things that happen, as as you said in mm-hmm. in, in in your book in 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 uh, uh, in the Netherlands and in England that create the modern world and then become the the model not just for America but you know for the whole world in different ways, and and one of them is that the Austro-Hungarians develop, develop uh, free market economic theory. Right, but that doesn't make me want to be an Austro-Hungarian. No, that's fair. That's fair. So. If it seems like I'm pushing back or hostile, it's because I actually agree with the top line argument that you're making, right? I, I'm a huge devotee of federalism in the American context. I like subsidiarity. I want to push power down the most local level possible. I do not want world government. I thought the EU, while I'm not as much of a critic, I don't, I, I don't like this talk about how it's just as bad as the Soviet Union and all that stuff. The EU was, was boneheaded and it was run by sort of Schumpeterian new class jackwads who want to impose their, you know, technocratic <laughs> vision on everybody. That, I'm totally with you on all that stuff, right? <laughs> International criminal court is deeply flawed. I believe that there's, that, that America's orientation to the world should understand that the rules outside the extended order of liberty, which is in our borders, is different, are different than the rules within it. Um, I'm totally down with you about the, the role of competition, but nationalism has a valence. In our culture and our debates, that is very, that is not 
subsumed entirely in that. Couldn't you have written the exact same book called The Virtues of Sovereignty or The Virtues of Sovereignteyism or something like that or Independence? Um, that's the sounds like the argument. Well, maybe may, may independence. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It 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 could be the virtue of independence. I think I think that that's very similar. But uh, but it's really not. It's really not just the virtue of sovereignty because one one of the s- central arguments in the book is that the state, as conceived in the enlightened Enlightenment social contract, so we're we're talking about mm-hmm. Hobbes, Locke, Spinoza, right. Kant, uh, also. Rousseau of the social contract, mm-hmm. and then going up to all the people who taught us in you know taught us in college and, and and graduate school. That model, which teaches inculcates the view that a state uh, that the political order in a country fundamentally can be reduced to individuals, their consent, and then the state. Mm-hmm. My argument is that that model is useful for certain purposes it's it, it it's helpful in developing an economic theory for example mm-hmm. but that it's it's tragically and irreparably insufficient in order to get a a a a a, a true and usable uh political theory off the ground so what what do we actually need well i think Looking across America today, I mean, I think think my argument probably is easier to get across than it might have been earlier, a few years ago. Um, my argument is that that the most powerful, the most powerful force in all politics at all levels, uh, from the smallest to the largest scale, the most po- powerful force is a natural human capacity for mutual loyalty, mm-hmm. which is what John Stuart Mill called cohesion or fellow mm-hmm. feeling. But I think mutual loyalty is just easier to understand. And this is not a subjective thing. It's an it, it, it's an objective thing that uh, exists. Either a certain uh, society has a, a very high degree of mutual loyalty or, or 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 cohesion, which which doesn't you know doesn't mean that we don't we're not individuals. Mm-hmm. We can fight and compete, and and you know like 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 children or, or parents and children fight and they fight with one another up until there's a challenge or a threat uh, or some kind of adversity from the outside. And then each one feels um, like – suddenly feels that the, the, the threat is as though it's happening to them mm-hmm. and, and then they feel like they're, they're a single unit. So that – that same capacity that happens in the family, it, it can scale up. You can have families that are loyal to each other in a clan. Clans are loyal to each other in a tribe. And tribes, when they develop a, a mutual loyalty of this kind, they, they become a nation. Now, the reason that this is important is because that phenomenon is completely independent of the existence of a state. It exists in society, in pre-state sure. uh, tribal societies. And it uh, Kurds are a nation, but they're not a state. The Kurds are a nation, but they're not a state. Right. And and equally important, Iraq is a state, but it's not a nation. Right. right? I mean, there simply is no mutual loyalty among uh, uh, among the different peoples in Iraq, mm-hmm. and so it's a it's kind of like a a Western fantasy that you know we we give them a flag and a national anthem, maybe we help them write a constitution, and then suddenly they're a people. Mm-hmm. Now, if your political theory is uh, is based on Hobbes or Locke or or uh, Rousseau social contract, then by definition, all those Iraqis living within that state, they are in fact a people or a nation. And I'm I, I'm all of those are rationalist thinkers. I make uh, a, a kind of a big big deal about this. There's an independent 
empiricist tradition, which I see myself as a part of, and the empiricists all reject this identification of uh, uh, th there's a social contract and therefore the nation is the state. They all reject it. I'm talking about uh, Selden, Hume, Smith, Adam Ferguson, mm. um, uh, uh, John, John, John Stuart Mill, of mm -hmm. course, Burke, all of the, by my lights, sure. really great political thinkers understood that this was just absolutely false. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I, I wouldn't write a book called uh, uh, The Virtue of Sovereignty because, mm -hmm. because sovereignty is, is, you know, it's one of these, these words that comes from that French statist right, right. Uh, tradition mm -hmm. where what, what matters is, uh, the, the the state and the you know the individuals in it and and there aren't any other structures that are legitimate legitimate or important. Now notice that that the kinds of the kinds of countries that you know that we keep referring back to as as admirable, the Dutch or the English or the Americans, they are all very much aware of the fact that that their nations come together out of a diversity of tribes mm -hmm. or d d in America's case a diversity of colonies of states, factions right, whatever, right, right. Fa factions and and not only that but that diversity is is permanent i mean the the, the goal is is to uh, to uh, take the violence out of it to create a civility and a comedy which is which comes with the mutual loyalty so you conduct your uh, your angry and upset you know, debates among one another in a way that doesn't destroy the fabric as the, as, of the whole, which unfortunately may be what we're seeing in the United States right now. But a traditional nationalism of the kind that's built on the biblical ideal, mm -hmm. right? And going back to the Bible, remember the, the Israelite nation is also very diverse and consists of unifying a bunch of fractious tribes who are at war right. with one another. And, and so, uh, this is not just this this kind of traditional Anglo-American nationalism, going back to the Bible, it's not just a theory of the international order. It's also a theory of the domestic order, which says our country is always going to have different tribes and, and not just American federalism. But if you take a look at, at the British Constitution, which which has you know an established church for the English in England, mm -hmm. but then it has a different Presbyterian established church for for the Scots and a different one in Ireland I mean that that's already a proto-federalism which comes from the empirical character of of Anglo-American political thinking so okay I get the argument about imperialism being bad going outside of your borders but if you go back and you look at France or 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 England um, or I should say the UK and certainly Germany, which was at one point 70, 80 little principality kind of things, right? There was an enormous amount of what you might call internal imperialism, right? Where, or consolidation. There were lots of different dialects spoken, uh, primary languages spoken within the borders of what we today call France. Aren't a lot of nation states, or nations, sorry, formed through, I mean, it, it's a nation if you can get away with it, right? You know, if you can, yeah bend everybody at the point of a sword to say we're going to be part of this common culture, then all of a sudden, you know, if if, if Spain had been just a little more brutal with the Basques, um, no one would be talking about Basque independence. And we would just say that the Basques are, are Spaniards, right? Ditto, you know, 50 years ago, the Welsh language was almost gone, and now it's coming back. What is the limiting principle internal to nationalism for figuring out where you draw the lines between what you can get away with and what you can't. I mean, if German, 
Germany took the Sudeten Germans as part of their notion. If they stopped at that kind of thing, is that okay? The borderlands between France and Germany switch side. I, 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 last I checked, Trieste was still part of Italy, but you know, give it a week. <laughs> <laughs> so my point is, is that if there is, I guess what's bothering me a little bit is it feels like, and and this may be unfair to you because I am imposing what other people are arguing about nationalism on your argument a little bit, or I fear I might be doing that. But it seem, it feels like there's a sort of a little bit of having it both ways. You want to make an argument that nationalism is, is fundamentally about an argument about how best to organize the world order, about sovereign independent nations um, that hopefully have states that are representative of those peoples, right? And that it's an argument about essentially global federalism with no central government, right? It's 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 sort of which means it's not really federalism, federalism. right? I know, but I'm just trying to figure out uh, the language for it, right? It's it's a system of it's a it's a marketplace of nation states, right? Yes, yeah, and that's fine. I get all that, but it also seems like you want to make the argument that nationalism, in and of itself, is a which seems when you're when you're placing it in the context of the biblical tradition and whatnot. That it also has a profound moral component that makes it superior to other forms of social organization, right? And so it's not that when you start making that argument, that's no longer a foreign policy argument or a global right. order argument. That is an, the argument that this is a better way of organizing society internally to the borders, right? Yeah. Yes. And you believe that? I I, I do believe that. But you also but, believe that there can be bad nationalisms and good nationalisms. Sure. I mean, right. I, look, this is not a utopian book. And I get that. I, I, no, I know. But I, it, it's a little bit hard for people to understand because a, a lot of times people have this expectation that that a political theory is – that its purpose is to like solve all the problems. Right. And even if, you know, large scale acceptance and enthusiasm of, you know, of, of my principles were to occur, you're still going to end up with, with a world full of problems. Right. I mean, it, it, I, I, I don't think I'm solving all the problems. That's fine. And but, I, I, I'm not a utopian so, and I'm not okay, so, I'm trying to so, accuse you of being one. Um, so, so to, to answer your question. So, so, um, I, I do think that there, that, that, uh, that there is something that has been Lost from political discourse, maybe even quite recently, uh, in English-speaking countries, is um, is the idea of national freedom. Mm -hmm. Okay, and it's uh, part of the fact that all of us, you know, admire Milton Friedman and Hayek and and so on. Is is this kind of sense that any any th this background sense that any kind of discussion of collectives is there's something unseemly and wrong about it. And I think the the problem with this is that it simply suppresses crucial, powerful truths about who and what we are. Mm -hmm. The fact, I think, is that that we do feel a sense of tremendous joy when a collective or community that, we, that we're bound to with these ties of mutual loyalty, when it grows strong, when it wins a victory, when it we we feel joy and pleasure, uh, and 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 when it's defeated, we feel terrible loss. I mean, so, so the 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 fact that that a fellow uh, national um, can you know can, can die on the battlefield or be killed in a terrorist attack or something, mm -hmm. and and you know an entire nation of millions of people can can all almost all I mean most of the people in the country can can feel the 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 weight of the grief. Mm -hmm. 
th- that's an astonishing thing and um, certainly very central to uh, the uh, the English or the American tradition used to be an awareness that there is such a thing as, as national freedom. When the allies fought in World War II, they fought their their self-conception, but also what they were broadcasting, you know, on uh, uh, in the radio broadcast to Europe was uh, the, uh, uh, Hitler is an imperialist oppressing, right? right? And, and we are an alliance of free nations. What we're fighting this war is for is to allow each, each nation its freedom. And Likewise, I, th- I mean, I, th- I think even in the Cold War, many of the people who I speak to who were uh, in, in, involved in the American administration back then, they described themselves that way as, as thinking sure. we're trying – when we say the free world, we're trying to allow nations to be free. That, that doesn't mean that they're all going to be like us. That means that, that we're resisting the communist effort to make everybody like them. Mm-hmm. And so if there is such a thing as national freedom – Okay, then, then, then we're already stepping out of the, the 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 usual framework of liberal political theory, and we're talking about a uh, a, a different human good that is important to us and is apparently in ira- something we can't eradicate. How do you organize things in such a way that uh, that individuals who are loyal to a a certain nation or a certain tribe, certain region? That that they get to have this uh, this sense that their language, their traditions are being handed down, are growing, are being developed, are being strengthened. Uh, and uh, the answer is: first of all, we have to recognize it exists. Second, um, nationalism is an expression of dividing up the world in order to allow some significant degree of that in many places in the world. Mm-hmm. And third, beyond that, we can say, well, look, federalism, the, the uh, arrangements that allow localisms to, to, to have their own degree of freedom, we, we, we support that as well. But notice that in order to keep a – this is the flip side. In order to keep a national state viable, you can't only be thinking about uh, 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 about uh, diffusion, diffusion of power. You also have to be thinking constantly about what is it that's unifying and holding these tribes together. Um, and so, in the case of the United States, for example, the the Americans began as a uh, a Protestant, English speaking, common law observing, biblically biblically literate nation. Mm-hmm. They expanded by bringing in successfully. Uh, Catholic tribes and Jews and 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 various others and and un, un, unfortunately uh, um, not fully successfully yet the survivors of the abomination of of slavery the the Black Americans but at least the idea of expanding from the original thing seems to have been often largely successful but on the other hand the Americans were extremely careful they 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 never allowed into the Union as a state. Any territory on which there was not a majority of English speakers, mm-hmm. right? So if the, if there was a majority of Spanish speakers or, or or Native American languages or Polynesian in Hawaii, th- those territories do not become part of the United States until uh, until they're ready to have a majority of English speakers, a majority of people observing the common law, and 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 uh, and and uh, the federal government continued up until you know up and uh, until you know decades ago to 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 fund efforts to to christianize the, the american indians in order to to bring them in now 
I, whether you specifically think that those the, those measures are correct or or, or take uh, America's uh, the federal government's battle to uh, eradicate um, polygamy among the Mormons. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these are sometimes coercive, mm-hmm. sometimes violent efforts to make sure that uh, the the territories and populations that are brought into the American nation have some kind of coherent character. Despite the fact that they believe in in federalism and individual freedom, freedom, that's something that I think that has really been lost from the conversation is I I believe in small government, right? I I, I would like very limited government. But the fact that the government is limited doesn't mean that it doesn't have crucial responsibilities in drawing the boundaries culturally for what's going to count as as being American. It's always been there. Now it's, it seems – I mean people it, – it feels like it's become illegitimate mm-hmm. to, to, to talk like that. And I'm, I'm just afraid that if it's illegitimate to talk like that, then I, 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 don't, I don't know what future the American nation has. I mean you, you have to be able to think not just about freedom but also about what is it that holds you together. That's a good place to talk about our first – advertiser this week it's uh frequent you know his his main claim to fame is he is a frequent guest of the remnant podcast but he's also a u.s senator senator ben sass has come out with a new book that offers an intimate and urgent assessment of the existential crisis facing our nation them why we hate each other and how to heal by ben sass ken burns calls them a thoughtful plan of action to begin to dissolve the toxic divisions that threaten the very survival of our republic Arthur Brooks, my boss here at the American Enterprise Institute, praise be upon him, calls them candid, sensible, and wise, and the surest path back to our founding ideals. Read Them by Ben Sass, published by Martin's St. Martin's Press, available now wherever books are sold. And I saw Ben Sass in the green room at Face the Nation uh, on Sunday, and uh, we talked for a while, and then I said, hey, you know what would be a crazy idea? Maybe you guys should send me a copy of your book because he hasn't sent it yet, which is weird given how much free promotion I give that guy. But anyway, so look, on all of that, I agree with you in the, to a large extent that many of the problems that like Ben Sass is writing about in his book, that I write about in my book, that Patrick Deneen writes about in his book and that you write about in yours is this loss of sense of social solidarity. The, there's, there's, we got too much pluribus and not enough unum. Right. And I would argue, and I will momentarily, I think, argue that that much more needs to be a ground up rather than a top down thing for political reasons, philosophical reasons, that it starts in local institutions. It starts with the family, that, you know, the, the, the family is what civilizes barbarians into citizens. And when the family breaks down, when local institutions break down, when an organized religion no longer has the hold on people that it does, becomes much more difficult to civilize people into being other-oriented, to being patriotic, and to being just decent people. And instead, we live in a culture now, very Rousseauian culture, that says, follow your feelings. Uh, we've, we've severed the traditional, the traditional classical liberal understanding of individualism, which was the culmination of being virtuous. And instead, we basically now consider individualism to be an invitation to indulging your appetites and self-expression rather than self-discipline. And I think that's a huge problem in our culture. It stems from all sorts of places. There's an ideological problem. 
you know, at the University of California, it is considered a, a microaggression to use phrases like assimilation or melting pot, right? And that to me is a suicidal thing. I mean, that is just incredibly stupid and not just stupid, but pernicious. And, um, and I agree, you know, with our mutual friend Yuval Levin that, you know, one of the problems that you get from rampant individualism is actually rampant statism because when the mediating institutions of the ecosystem of a society that civilizes wither away, all you're left with is uh, the sort of naked Lockean understanding of the individual or naked Rousseauian understanding of the – or romantic understanding of the individual and the state. And the only institution left to let you exercise your your appetites is the government. And you don't look to others. You don't look to other human beings and all that. So I, I'm very sympathetic to all of that. I guess – what I keep trying to tease out is this idea that the way you use nationalism as an international or a global phenomenon is a little bit like the word individualism. Um, Hannibal Lecter is an individualist. <laughs> so is Mother <laughs> Teresa, right? I mean, lots of people are individualists. That doesn't mean they're good or evil, right? It, 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 you need a sec, you need a, a, a follow-up question to find out if they're good people. Right. The concept of nationalism, as I hear it from the Trump administration, where we're all nations, we all exercise our sovereign, you know, authority, we're free and independent, and we're not going to kowtow to these globalist institutions and all the rest. As a policy agenda, I agree with a lot of that, where that's coming from. As rhetoric, I have a lot of problems with it. Um, and we can see just this, this last week, you know, the Saudi Arabians, it looks like murdered a journalist and they are pushing back against any sanctions against them for it, saying that we are a sovereign nation and we have rights to do what we want with our citizen and yada, yada, yada. And um, so part of the way you talk about nationalism, certainly it's part of the way that, that the Trump administration talks about nationalism, is it leaves one little moral recourse to condemn bad nationalism. I'm not talking about imposing what, like what we did in Japan or in Germany. I'm not talking about imposing our – you know, in an imperial way, our morals on other countries or even Iraq. Um, but certainly we have to draw from something else other than this 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 understanding of nationalism. Oh, that, that's for sure. To condemn evil behavior by sovereign independent nations. Oh, I, I, I completely agree with that. Look, I, I, it, 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 it's a book about a particular subject. It, uh, I mean, the, 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 this particular book is, is uh, although I I do take some sides. I mean, sure. I, I I do say I prefer the Anglo-American nationalist tradition to the other versions that I that I know of, right. and I and I, I and, and I I uh, make an effort, uh, a small effort to to direct attention to the biblical foundation, also of. Uh, the concept of of a moral minimum, which mm -hmm. I mean, art, already exists in political theory in in Europe in the Middle Ages. I mean, and is 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 drawn from scripture. Uh, there are other things besides nationalism in order to 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 paint a complete picture, if that were possible, sure. of of what a particular political theory looks like. I mean, so we we, we could have a, a, another conversation about. Um, questions like, um, is, is the biblical tradition a better basis for, uh, for public morality mm -hmm. than, uh, than the natural law tradition, which is, you know, is basically the updated Stoics, which an awful lot of academics these days are, are promoting. That's an interesting mm -hmm. conversation and I'm happy to discuss it with sure, you. Sure, sure, sure. But it, 
but it is a somewhat separate question from um, he, I, I'm proposing a, a, a best political order. Mm-hmm. That best political order doesn't yet answer the question that you're asking. Just like if you say, um, uh, what, what's the best form of regime? And someone says, okay, well, the best form of regime is a republic or a democracy. There's still going to be bad republics, uh, b- bad evil and good republics. Right. There's still going to be evil and good democracies. I mean, I mean the, the fact that you're rotating power and, and, and doesn't mean that the political parties aren't, aren't all completely horrible from our perspective. Mm-hmm. So I certainly don't want to be, you know, on the side of people who think, think that, Americans have no standing to uh, to uh, to upbraid the Saudis or to take actions where where they think it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. I I do think what's important. I think it is important to be aware of the fact that um, that when Americans do that, they're doing that on the basis of American values. Sure. Okay. Which which I, I mean. So that means that if Barack Obama is president and uh, and uh, American values at you know at this particular point include um, uh, um, a, a, a certain perspective on on homosexual marriage. Mm-hmm. So then then the American president is upbraiding African countries for having the wrong view on homosexual marriage. I mean it, it, it's it, it's not simple to figure out you know what are the uh, the the fundamental human rights that everybody can agree on because because right. you know with with very few exceptions not everybody can agree with them but and some of that's a prudential question about how much you want to piss off other countries by lecturing about stuff they're just socially not ready to do or will ever be ready to do right i mean it it is but i i think that i am urging a greater restraint without well you know what i something important to say is i i certainly believe that at the extreme um uh, and I, I write this in the book at the, at the extreme, uh, um, hundreds of thousands of people are being slaughtered in Rwanda right. or, or, or millions in Cambodia. If, if you have the power to go in, stop it and get out without, you know, then having to occupy the country for a hundred years, right. then, uh, certainly I think I, it seems like it's a, a, a basic moral obligation to do it if you can. But I, on, on the other hand, I, I, I think that America has moved in this last generation to a degree of intolerance for other for other beliefs mm-hmm. that I don't remember in my lifetime. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And and that, that that's two sided. That's that's both people are intolerant of other beliefs domestically like you know you said the wrong thing you you, you believe the wrong thing out with you you know right. you, you have no career left anymore because you you just said the wrong thing. There's that kind of intolerance which is Scary and astonishing to find in the United States, and but the 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 the, cor, the corollary of that is the same is this total intolerance for other ways of life or or decisions by other governments. So uh, let, let 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 me give you an example: the 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 the, the Hungarians, um, and and I don't know enough about Hungary to be sure. you know. 
this is not a judgment about their their government one way or another. But the Hungarians want to have such and such uh, a a uh, uh, an immigration policy, or the Poles uh, have uh, uh, have have a problem with the way their judiciary works, and they're trying to stop it, or they're going to impose. Um, uh, 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 Sabbath observance laws so that all the stores are closed on Sunday. And then you, you get people across Europe and then over into the United States pontificating and condemning and, 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 and deploring things which are, you know, they, I can understand that, that you disagree and you don't want to live like that. But on the other hand, if, if, if the, the Hungarians say their country's been uh, a Christian country for a thousand years and they look at the United States and it's not like the United States is a perfect country, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they look at the United States and they say, well, American children are now born out of marriage at a rate of, you know, upward of 40% or mm-hmm. something like that. And they say, well, look, that one statistic alone is enough to tell you that there's something deeply, deeply wrong with the way Americans are doing something. Mm-hmm. So they want to try something else. Mm-hmm. Now, it's natural that Americans look at what they're trying to do and they say, oh, I don't like that. But the, the, the impulse to, to then think that, that your brain is so capable of generating universal political truth for everybody that, that it just makes sense for, 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 for you to get down you know, their throats or maybe even start trying to strong arm them on these issues. I, I think that's just way too much. Mm-hmm. It, all right. So, so the, the, if, if the Saudis have, have, have killed this innocent man who, who is, you know, resident of the United States on, on, on top of it, I think we can all agree about murder. Mm-hmm. But there are not that many things beyond murder. We can all agree about torture, mm-hmm. but but the, there really aren't very many things where I where I think that uh, the, the, this confidence that that I, my universal reason is capable of judging judging them, I, I think it's just way too much. I want a much greater empiricism. I, I would like to see people saying, you know, we do things our way, they do things their way. I don't get it, but you know. Uh, centuries are going to tell whether our way is better or their way is better. Yeah, I, I guess I would – I have two points. One, I think that much of that is actually a phenomenon of Europeans more than Americans, but uh, lecturing people that we think should be part of our tribe, right? We're talking about adding people to the EU or the European community or whatever it is, and there is an expectation of a certain amount of homogeneity of values and, and arrangements – Within that block, where you know, and and we can all agree to just put aside the question of whether the EU is a wise thing. I think that there is much more moral relativism outside of nations and societies that we think are part of our tribe, and so uh, it's a standard argument on a lot on vast swaths of the sort of the post-colonial left to say. Um, oh, that's just their traditions. That's the way they do things. Who are we to judge them? Of course, they're going to eat, you know, one virgin a month. Um, that's just, you know, who are we to judge, right? You, you, you know, you, you white patriarchal Christianity-based societies. Um, I, the second point I would make is that I would draw the line much differently than you would. I'm very fond of, you know, say what you will about the British Empire. I'm very fond of the line from what was his name? Napier, Napier, whatever it was, Napier. Anyway. Napier. Yeah, the, Na- the Napier. colonial governor, military general who, 
who put an end to the practice of seti, of wife burning. And he was told by all the local muckety-mucks, oh, you can't do that. There's a long tradition of wife burning in our country. And he allegedly said, oh, no, that's fine. I understand that. It's just that in my country, we have a long tradition of hanging people who burn their wives. And I do think that there is – that there are lines to draw beyond just at murder, at least rhetorically. Things change when you're talking about foreign interventions and all of the rest. But I guess this gets the, you know, and so I, there's a lot about Saudi Arabia I would condemn other than just the murdering of this journalist. It's the way they treat well, women and, sure. right? And, but conde there's condemning and then there's uh, attempting to in, to enforce change because you've got the answer for what should happen. I mean, the Germans are, the Germans are not just condemning I mean, they're 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 appointing the 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 correct finance minister in the government of Italy because the Italians picked the wrong one. They're determining the course of 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 Greek economics, and if 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 they can pull it off, if they could pull it off, then then they would be dictating immigration policy to 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 the Poles and the Hungarians, and 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 what size of fruit to grow sure. to the English. I, 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 look, I agree. I, all that stuff. So, so, but, but, don't you see this coming to America? I mean, that's we, we can have a good time agreeing about all, how awful the Germans are, and we'd be right about all of it. But, 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 don't you? Aren't you worried that this is coming to America? That that uh, that Merkelist universalist rationalism, that her thinking that she knows the answer for everybody, is also something that is rapidly advancing in the United States in circles certainly in in marxist universalist circles but sure. also also in a certain kind of liberal universalist circles yeah no look i i i think it's wrong i see that as as much a manifestation of the sort of progressive technocratic tradition that goes back 100 years in america that i have problems with i mean we can talk for a while about how much i hate woodrow wilson but i'd like to hear that <laughs> um but just to push back a little bit on this uh isn't one of the things that gives America a cohesive sense of who it is, is how it draws some of these lines? I mean, as a Jew, you wouldn't, I wouldn't go into business with a neo-Nazi. I wouldn't, if a neo-Nazi had a business, I'm not saying the government should shut down his business, but I certainly wouldn't be a patron, right? Uh, I, I grew up around a lot of uh, Jewish people in the 1970s who would never, ever drive a Mercedes because they were Jewish. And this was, a, you know, I don't want to get all Carl Schmidt and say, tell me who your enemy is and I'll tell you who you are. But there's a certain amount of definitional definitional cohesiveness that comes from drawing some of these lines. And when you have a public argument that says, well, you know, as, as the Trump administration does, says, you know, we can't get too uppity about them murdering uh, an American resident on foreign soil because we've got a hundred and whatever billion dollars in arms deals that we are and weapons we want to sell them. Isn't some part of the idea of drawing these lines, it's very much like, uh, you know, not one penny for tribute, but a million for defense of saying that there are some things Americans won't do because we are Americans. Isn't that part of this nationalism, the, ben the, the beneficial or benign nationalism that you're talking about is drawing those kinds of lines? I think so. I mean, I, I know so. I I I think. I mean, I I would again attribute it, and and I think it's. But that my point is, it comes with policy. It may not mean that we're going to invade Saudi Arabia, but it might mean that we put sanctions on them, we, which is a kind of imposition. We're trying to impose our values on them to some extent, because not doing it is a kind of acquiescence. 
I I completely agree, but I, I think I would, uh, I I think I would push it in a direction that I, I don't know if you'll agree. Maybe you won't. I I think that the the government, even a small government like the one that I'd want to see, one with much less bureaucracy and much lower taxation and all that, still a small government is is a crucial is a decisive moral actor, mm-hmm. and. The same way that I would like to see – it's not just a question of what I would like to see. I mean I, I think it's just his, historically the case that, uh, that, that nations do, do interfere in the affairs of neighboring countries at least at the level of, of, of protesting and threatening and, and, and the possibility of, of diplomatic rupture and if not diplomatic – and maybe even economic sanction. I mean I think that the, 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 there is a very wide – traditional spectrum of what governments do in order to try to press associated governments into behaving in ways that are not just more in their interests but also in line with their with values, the, with, their, values yeah. with, their, with their moral standards and their, their vision of the way the world should work. I think that's natural. That's, co- that, 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 that's completely normal. I, I also think and, – and, and here some of my, my, my more liberal – libertarian friends will will bristle i think the same thing is 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 even more true domestically uh, for better or worse president trump president obama are are people who have exerted a tremendous a tremendous effect on the culture they 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 uh, pe- people do and say things and think things are are are, are, are normal and right. I'm not saying like everybody just, you know, follows them, but very large sections of the population, consciously or unconsciously, end up taking really seriously the things that, that Americans say. And that's part of our, 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 our nature to, 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 to look at the head of, the head of the nation, the head of our tribe. Um, and, um, it's definitely the case that, you know, the, the, the heads of the tribe are not always politicians. Uh, I mean, Jordan Peterson is an example of somebody who does it, you know, without any kind of political platform. And, and I'm sure we could come up with other examples. But the bottom line is that that we, if we, if we're disturbed by the destruction of the family, I, I like you think that that the that that the family is is where inculcation of uh, a sense of sacredness, a sense of right and wrong, fundamentally first happens. It happens mm-hmm. in other places, but first it happens in the family. And if it doesn't happen in the family, it's really hard to do it in the other places. And if it doesn't happen in the family, then then you may end up with with I mean, as as you said in your book, with barbarism, right? In all senses. So so he, here we have the families being destroyed, but that doesn't. I I can't I can't conceive of. Thinking that the government, that 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 the head of the government, that the the president of the United States, shouldn't be someone who is concerned about this. Now, it may be, it may be the case that there are no policies, that there are no actual policies that could do anything about this. Because I don't know the answer to whether you know uh, w- whether a different kind of social safety net would or wouldn't incur. Right. I, I have absolutely no idea. But what I what I think is clear. Is that if the president is talking about family and talking about having uh, having children and parents staying together and 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 
I mean, this is already, you know, wild fantasy, mm -hmm. right? If the president. not the best messenger for some of that, but yeah. <laughs> no, I, no, well, th this president, but I'm talking about. In, All presidents, yeah. Uh, and I'm talking about presidents sure. a, a, as, an, as an institution, yeah. re recognizing the cultural impact of this. All right, so Americans don't study the Bible anymore. If there's a, uh, going to be some kind of cultural step, not a, not a policy step, a cultural mm -hmm. step, a cultural – well, you know, look at what an impact Trump had on football. Mm -hmm. I mean that's kind of astonishing. People don't usually think about this. The, the president talks and the culture shifts mm -hmm. on an institution that, you know, that I would have thought was completely impregnable to, mm -hmm. to assault. Now, if you, can, if you can do that on, at, with respect to football, so let's – at least imagine some kind of you know wild future where where the American president feels like like uh, speaking in favor of uh, of uh, of a return to scripture as as, uh, as something foundational is, is something that gets talked about because because it's completely I mean right now it it all of my closest friends who are who are public intellectuals who are in media who are you know, pe pe people who who are really sorry that that uh religion god and and scripture are just completely disappearing mm -hmm. from 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 huge sections of the american and european landscape almost all of them in their in in their in their own work play by this unwritten rule where they also sort of put god aside and scripture sure. aside and somebody's got to change that. No, I agree. I, I, I agree with that entirely. You know, how much we would talk about scripture versus sort of morality. I mean, one of the amazing things about the, you brought up before about Utah coming into the union was that, you know, it was to me, that's always a great example of the fact that, uh, America used to push moral conformity, but theological pluralism, right? They, they said, look, you can, you can worship, you can do all that stuff in the Book of Mormon, but you can't have more than one wife. And once they said, once they agreed to conform to the moral norm, the theological deviationism was, who cares, right? And that's one of the, and that's one of those examples of sort of stored up moral capital in our society that we've been spending down for a very long time. And I think, you know, regardless of whether we're going to get the problem, some of the problems I have with the idea of the president doing that too much, but I think the broader problem is one that Charles Murray identified a long time ago is that the main problem with our country today isn't really that the president isn't talking about these things. It's that elites in general don't talk about any of it and even worse, they don't preach what they practice. You know, the marriage crisis for the top 5, 10, 20 percent ended 20 years ago or something. Rich people, successful people – get married, stay married. They don't have kids until after they get as much education as they can. And it turns out that if you do that, you'll be successful. I mean, the odds are, I mean, this is a point that Tyler Cowen and some other people have made is that the the premium on getting married, ec the economic premium on getting married is equal to or greater than the premium going to college. But everybody in secular society who says you have to go to college, you have to go to college, no, everyone's terrified to say you have to get married. Even though on on the their own terms, if if the reason you're supposed to go to college is supposed to have this great economic benefit, you should at least say, or you can get married, right? And but they don't want to say that because that sounds judgy, and the sort of the crisis of judge anti judgmentalism is a huge problem in our culture, and I agree with that entirely. And sometimes it can even deny you a good night's sleep. But you know what can't 
is Casper Mattresses. What is Casper? Well, first of all, it's a new advertiser on this podcast, and that's awesome. We like new advertisers. Uh, they've advertised plenty of times on uh, Glop, uh, which is my other podcast home. Uh, but Casper is a sleep brand that makes expertly designed products to help you get your best rest one night at a time. It's designed by humans for humans. Casper products are cleverly designed to mimic human curves, providing supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies. You spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. The experts at Casper work tirelessly to make a quality sleep service that cradles your natural geometry in all the right places. The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive foam for a quality sleep surface with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. Breathable design helps you sleep, cool, and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. Casper has a huge selection. Casper offers two other mattresses, the Wave and the Essential. The Wave features a patent-pending premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body. The Essential has a streamlined design at a price that won't keep you up at night. Casper also provides a wide array of other products like pillows and sheets to ensure an overall better sleep experience. All designed, developed, and assembled in the U.S. Convenience, affordable prices, because Casper cuts out the middleman and sells directly to you. It has hassle-free returns if you are not completely satisfied. They're delivered right to your door in a small, how do they do that size box? Free shipping and returns in the U.S. and even Canada. So, you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. I know lots of people. Kevin Williamson is a is a Casper uh, fanatic. Uh, John Podoritz has spent his own money in violation of all sorts of journalistic and podcast norms on Casper. I've used Casper. It's great. Also, if you order now, if you can get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash dingo and using the promo code dingo at checkout. Terms and conditions may apply. But that's what what you want to do is go to casper.com slash dingo. And thanks to Casper for being a new sponsor of The Remnant. Okay, so uh, I want to switch gears quickly. Um, Well, hold on. Just one one comment about judgy. uh Obama had no problem being judgy. Trump has no problem being right. judging. They're just judging about the wrong stuff. Right. So you you can you can you can disagree, but I I actually think that 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 is um, needed. It's needed to to look at the 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 moral and uh, and religious and traditional vacuum that has opened up and. Each person at his at his own level, but I but I I think we should stop saying that these things should be divorced from politics, because I I, I think that the, the the political leadership they are they are to a very significant degree the people who are shaping our our culture. I think we can change what the politicians are saying a lot faster than we can change what the academics are saying. Sure, um, and look, as an empiricist and uh, as an empirical point, the role that stigma shame you know, that kind of thing has in shaping behaviors is, is one of the earliest insights in all of humanity, right? And, and I, I think there should be more of that. And the thing is, it's, it's one of these annoying things is that when you say we need to have 
you know, bring back the notions of shame and stigma. You're right. We have those notions. We just have them about other things. We don't have them about sort of bourgeois values about, you know, you know hard work and, and, and getting married and raising kids and going to church or synagogue and all of that. But all right. So this, this raises the point that I wanted to steer towards. There may have been a time when the president of the United States where we had enough, uh, homogeneity, cultural, racial, ethical, religious in this country where the president could speak on some of these things and it would move people regardless of partisan affiliation, right? Um, I mean, you can certainly think that Eisenhower spoke to all Americans. One of the problems that we have now is that negative polarization is so fierce that if, you know, if the Republicans come out for puppies, Half the country immediately comes out for kittens, right? And and you can see this where all of a sudden liberals are much more pro free trade than they've ever been because Trump is against it, and uh, and you could find all sorts of things uh, counterexamples of this with Obama where conservatives would switch their positions. You find lot, you know, you find lots of Americans who have changed their views on on adultery. I mean, all the sexual politics stuff of the last year because of Me Too is you can show how. How tribal attachments to your party or your leader can cause you to shed or bend previous principles and the like. And this is one of my problems with the project of nationalism in America is that when you start saying things like the flag belongs to my party, right, or that the Pledge of Allegiance is our thing, you encourage those who dislike – who may not have any problem with the Pledge of Allegiance and may not have any problem with the flag – to all of a sudden have problems with those things because they become markers for partisan affiliation. And I remember during uh, the Obama presidency, you had a bunch of idiots every now and then would come forward and want to burn the Quran, right? And, and I think that's an idiotic, offensive thing to do. But then you would have all sorts of Democrats or liberals say, it's free speech, it's wonderful, blah, 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 blah. I mean, I say you have a bunch of conservatives saying it's it's free speech, it's wonderful, right? Blah blah blah, and you'd have liberals saying, no, no, we have to ban it, right? And you had the similar thing after Benghazi, where you had all these people, all these Democrats saying, you need a heckler's, we need to have a heckler's veto, and the guy who put out that movie should go to jail because he's making people angry, and you end up making things like free speech, patriotism, all of these things as markers in the they get subsumed into partisan debates. And that is a real problem. And so part of my problem with the nationalist agenda that we're seeing more and more on the right is that not only do I think it will not work, and a lot of it is grounded in really bad economics, but I actually think it will accelerate the process by which the other side takes an anti-nationalist position. And sometimes you have to pull back from these things rather than uh, press them frontally because in, in, in a such a partisan moment, it is very polarized moment, it is very difficult to get the other side to buy into these things. If you look at the Democratic Party and how anti-Israel it's become, you know, the 2012 convention where they booed God and Israel, it's a perfect example. As Israel becomes more and more of a Republican issue, Democrats start turning on Israel because it's a Republican issue. And so it, I would rather presidents sometimes not talk about these things for precisely these kinds of reasons. What do you think of that? Well, I, I think everything you said was true, and I, I but, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure whether it, it can be decisive. I mean, the, the problem is that 
the phenomenon you're describing is is a hundred percent real. It's exactly right. I, I you know, I, I see it all the time. It's incredibly disheartening. But I think I think first we need to get clear on what's actually needed in in a society that has uh, is rapidly tribalizing and and dangerously so. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first step has to be to at least agree. With whoever we can agree about, uh, with whoever mm-hmm. we can we can come to get to agree. Sure. To. So, so if, if it's only one party, if it's only half a party, if it, I mean, I hope it's more, but if, that without a unifying, without a unifying cultural core, that and I'm not saying something that everybody has to agree to. I'm saying something that that can. Unite, control the center of gravity, right? The, right. The, the center of gravity, which 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 could lean, you know, one way or another, but 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 it it still has to be something that, if not today, then you could imagine that in ten years or in thirty, it will be unifying, given certain cultural shifts. I don't I don't see people talking about that. I mean, <clears throat> there's a a very certain segment that uh, that is. Uh, constantly talking about the about the Declaration of Independence mm-hmm. um, in, in ways that I'm I'm not even sure are unifying, but 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 at least they're trying. Mm-hmm. And the I mean I th- I think that that is the question. I think it's it's almost the only question is okay. So that's your view, but what are you proposing as the unifying set of principles around which? the the different american tribes can come together and i mean you know we we, we can all see that that the things are being thrown out one after another that 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 for, for, first first the, the 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 presidency becomes you know an an object of of contempt because the wrong president is in it and then it becomes the senate and now it's going to be the supreme court and this progressive delegitimization of uh, crucially needed institutions is something that I, I don't believe that you can just go back just because one of these branches will be conquered by the other party. Uh, that that doesn't mean that the, the, that all the mutual the the, the mutual uh, uh, comedy and respect will return. The opposite, it's not going to return. It, I mean, it, it, it's just going to continue in in a da- downward spiral. So, if you're someone who wants a hope of getting out of this, then the conversation. And you know maybe that's just not a conversation that that you know that CNN or is going to be interested in. Right. But so what? The conversation has to be: what is it about Americans that uh, that that allows them to be a unified people twenty years from now? Yeah. So I, I, I guess I come at it from a completely different direction. I think one of the reasons why we have the problems that we have is that. The government in Washington is very much acting like an imperial power over the entire country, right? And the way you solve that is not by coming up with an argument for why everybody should love certain things about the centralized government. It's that you should dismantle the the imperial power. And one of the reasons why the Supreme Court is so controversial these days is that the Supreme Court is doing things it's not supposed to do. And when you invest that much political power in an institution, people are going to treat it very politically. And so I think the solution is like the truck that gets stuck in the tunnel. You know, you get it out by letting the air out of the tires. And I would send as much down to the most local level possible. And what what would emerge, you know, the founding fathers used to say, in essentials, unity and everything else, liberty. 
And one of the things that we've lost sight of, and I recently wrote about this, is this, you know, enough with the talk about diversity. Diversity has come to mean lots of, that every institution should be full of people who look different and think the same. What we want is more variety. And it's sort of your argument about on the global order, right? And so if the, you know, you have to be, you have to protect basic civil rights. You have to be, protect the bill of the stuff in the bill of rights. But beyond that, you know, if, if people want to be Amish, let them be Amish. And if people want to let their freak flag fly in some commune, you let them do that because federalism actually in that sense, is the best system for letting the most people live the way they want to live. But you have to allow for the fact that some people are going to want to live conservatively based on biblical values and all the rest. And one of the good news is, is that those people will probably demographically uh, reproduce themselves at much higher rates than other people will um, than the sort of Rousseauian hedonists. But instead, you get this argument from the socialists on the left and the nationalists on the right. And I'm not talking about you, but I'm talking about the other people who fly under that banner who want to use the government in Washington to impose a one-size-fits-all meaning of what it means to be an American. And I don't think that that's what happened. That's what how America was run in the 18th and 19th century. I think people got their sources of meaning and identity much closer to home from faith, family, friends, and community. And there were a few things that – there were only a handful of things that united all Americans together. And otherwise, there was, uh, you know, a diversity of lifestyle. Admittedly, it was within this – very tight moral order of the Judeo-Christian tradition, which were lost, but the government's not going to reimpose that. Um, that's going to have to come from the ground up. And what I would argue for is that, you know, and this is one of the things that I really don't like about the nationalist cause in politics on the right these days, is that because the government in Washington is the only thing that speaks for the whole nation, right? It's the only institution that speaks for the whole nation. Therefore, any ideas about public policy get converted into arguments that are essentially statist. And I've made this point many, many times that if you look around, if you look around at in terms of economics, nationalism and socialism are very hard to distinguish from one another. When we nationalize industries, we socialize industries. And if you look at the economic nationalism of the Steve Bannon crowd or the economic patriotism of Barack Obama, It'd be hard to push a dime between them theoretically. They are so close to each other. And I'm not a big believer in the centralized state in Washington, the central state in Washington, making all of the economic decisions for people. And that's where most of the nationalist, I mean, the symbolic, the, the symbolism stuff about the flag and the kneeling, fine, we can talk about that. And that, those are winning issues for Trump. But when it gets down to public policy, it's, and, and certainly economic policy, Nationalism is is almost almost not always but almost always protectionist. It is almost always about picking winners and losers from the coalition. You know, you want the winners of your economic coalition to to be rewarded and the losers from the other one to be punished. And and so that's part of my problem is that when you have when when you when you emphasize nationalism as an as a partisan organizing principle, you're you are begging the question that the central, the government in Washington is going to act on that in the name of this abstraction. Well, a couple of things. The fact that the nation that, that I'm interested in, uh, in a clear understanding of what nations are and an awareness of the crucial factor that conscious efforts at national unity play at 
making it possible for the country to continue into the future, and conscious efforts to distinguish your nation from others make in even even in a even in a peaceful peace loving country uh, that distinguishing not just drawing of of physical borders in the sand but drawing of mental borders and 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 talking about what makes us different and special and and mm-hmm. and, and unifies us the the fact that i'm interested in all of those things becoming part of public life and 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 part of political discussion doesn't dictate a particular economic policy look here's what it does do what it does do is it says there there have to be exceptions to the doctrine of uh, free movement of uh, uh, of goods, services, and ideas across all borders. That 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 that's that's a, a rigid, abstract theory from which we can learn many useful things. But it, it can't possibly be the case that a that a principle like that will lead to benefits for your country, for any given country, if it's applied like me- mechanically and in all cases. So, uh, so I. I think somebody can be uh, very sympathetic to immigration and at the same time feel that there is such a thing as too much immigration too rapidly. And, sure, I agree with and, that. And, and so, but so you the, said free movement of goods, services, and ideas. Did well, you misspeak or – No, I'm just quoting others. Okay. I, 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 I'm, I'm not – I mean I get free movement of people. Is a different thing, but it was like uh, if part of well, your. Well, I, I was I, I was specific. No, I'm, I'm I don't I don't have in 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 mind some kind of censorship regime uh-huh. or, or. No, no, no. I, just got, I, I thought the whole point about the competition of nations is that good ideas win out over time. So you want at least to be open to ideas from other places because well, they might have a better way of organization. I would think that countries that are open are going to be in better are, are going to be sure. in in better shape. But, but again, I mean, there's a there's a problem because the word open these days is not is not always used, you know, for for, you know, for an actual open openness to other ideas. The word open is often used as a synonym for for particular enlightenment ideas are the things mm-hmm. that we're trying uh, trying for. Anyway, we so to, to to go back to the this this issue of I'm interested in a small state. I'm completely on on your side. I would like to see a much much smaller state. I think that the that People are too dogmatic on the question of whether under certain circumstances in order to bargain with other countries, um, whether it's possibly useful in order to impose tariffs. And it's not because I have any kind of dogmatic – I'm, you know, if anything, I'm economically sympathetic to, to, to the free market side and not, and, mm-hmm. and not to the protectionism. But I do find it kind of disturbing that much of the commentary on this subject doesn't recognize that that there is in fact in politics a competition between nations and that competition sometimes br- brings you to circumstances where y- you've got to bargain. You like you, you have to do things to threaten or cajole some other country sure. in order to – and a, a lot of the commentary and this is – you know, I, I certainly don't. I'm not in a position. I don't know enough to be uh, in, in favor of particular, you know, Trump tariff policies. Mm-hmm. But I do find that the that the commentary every every time that some some tariff is imposed, the the, the commentary immediately goes back to the to, to the theory how, of of how having no tariffs would be best. But we're not living in that world. We're living in 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 a world where where the American government does have a responsibility to its people to to 
try to get other other governments to have policies which are not destructive to to this particular people. So if somebody says, well, I need leverage and in principle, somebody says, I need leverage. How am I going to get leverage? I'm going to get leverage by, 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 by slapping a tariff on something. So it's going to hurt them. It might hurt us more in the short term, but, but it gives me leverage. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. The opposite. I think that, 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 that is a, a, uh, a responsible national leadership thinking about the people that it represents and trying to figure out how it can, Advance the people that it represents. Yeah, no, I, I got no problem with that. You know, as long as we're abstracting this out to, to, to sort of hypotheticals, I do think it's strange that you know the president is talking about how we can't afford to anger the Saudis while he declared our largest oil supplier, Canada, a threat to national security. There is a weirdness in that, but that's neither here. I don't want to get into trade stuff, and we're going really long, so I just I want to close out on something that. Everyone wants me to ask you about. I think there are people. I think it's it's clear you do not like Locke, right? That is, it is clear. Right? <laughs> I think there are a lot of people, and I think this is one of the shortcomings in my book that I didn't really make it clear enough that I'm actually not a wild-eyed Locke devotee. Um, and I agree with you entirely. I think social contract theory is a hot mess, right? As just as a historical matter, there is no there. What I mean, you can say the Constitution may have been the first social contract, and even that it's complicated, right? You know. Um, but there was no sort of men in the state of nature coming together. I, I'm totally with you on that. I also – one of the things I was shocked by was how the second treatise was less influential on the founding than a lot of people make it out to be. His – Locke's influence on the founders had a lot more to do with his empiricism and his natural philosophy stuff than it had to do with the argument laid out in the second treatise. But you write that Locke's second treatise has abstracted away every – bond that ties human beings to one another other than consent um, and you go on to I heard you on Russ Roberts talking about how it's taught as a mathematical axiomatic principle right so why don't I in fairness let you get your you know what is it 10 minutes of hate what do they call it <laughs> <laughs> two minutes of hate you can do your two minutes of hate it'll unlock and then I'll, I'll just push back a little bit on it okay sure um the first important point has 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 to do with mathematics, and I, I I think this is just a problem with with the way that these the way that these ideas are taught. Um, Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and Kant. The, the, this is a a very the, the whole that whole social contract tradition. It's it's consciously and explicitly an attempt to to use. Um, the uh, the method of mathematics of geometry to try to get to absolute certain and universal truths. That's the reason that that when they when when early modern thinkers claim that uh, that they are going to use reason mm -hmm. in order to reach a universal truth, they're, they're completely relying on on the on the precedent of Euclid, where the the idea is. And, and of course, Descartes as the you know right. sort of like the, the, the modern avatar of of you know I can I can prove the entire world using reason. They begin with self-evident premises, and then they deduce by infallible deductions right. to universal infallible truths. And that method, all the empiricists that I cited earlier, they say this method is crazy. It, it, I mean, it it cannot it cannot possibly 
lead to appropriate results. Today, we don't even think it works in, in mathematics, that it's that these abstract systems are describing something that's internally valid, but that doesn't mean that they're true. It just means that they're internally, internally valid. So when, when, when it comes to, to Locke, we have this strange situation where he is doing this, this completely reckless, crazy abstraction in or, from, from, from almost everything in order to get the political world to work like a simple mathematical theorem. Mm-hmm. And, and so his, his, his axioms are, number one, there is such a thing as Number one, there is such a thing as, as uh, universal reason and it's accessible to anyone who will but, who will but consult it. Mm-hmm. Number two, all human beings are born perfectly free and perfectly equal. Mm-hmm. And number three, that moral obligation is, uh, 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 moral obligation arises for the individual only by his or her consent. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, all three of those are, are, are highly arguable axioms, right. but if we focus for a moment just on, just on the consent issue, as I said earlier, one of the central points that I make in my book is that the strongest, the strongest force in politics is the mutual loyalty that we find in, in cohesive collectives, mm-hmm. families, nations, sure. and, and others. And that doesn't mean consent doesn't have a crucial role to play. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that sympathy doesn't have – I mean there, there, there's all sorts of other forces that can enter into politics. But you can't have a sensible politics that ignores the most – what's by far the most powerful force. And so my my objection to Locke is not you know, to any kind of um, aspirational values that we can gain from the poetry or the uh, the aspiration of the consent of the governed and those kinds of they, they move me just like they move other people. Mm-hmm. My objection is to um, is to our our educational method where I was taken you know as a high schooler you know all the smart kids are put in a politics class and we study in politics we study Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and others we study three rationalist social contract universalist thinkers all three of them be- beginning with the axiom the same axiom that it's the consent of the the individuals that brings on moral obligation something that is absolutely not true mm-hmm. no i agree with that. that you my i i never consented to you know to 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 uh, who my parents are but i have obligations to them i never consented to who my 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 brother is i didn't even consent to who my children are but i have obligations to them and so i i wouldn't be making a big deal out of this if it were simply an intellectual exercise but it's not simply an intellectual exercise I believe that the reason and, – and I, I'm happy to hear alternative explanations, but I haven't heard any alternative explanations. Mm-hmm. If we want to know why it is that that a man and woman who want to get married and they want to stay married, they go into it wanting to be married for life, but overwhelmingly, you know, the, a huge majority – I don't know if a huge majority anymore, but whatever, a, a tremendous proportion of people who go into it are incapable of staying married despite the fact that they want to mm-hmm. all right and 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 the 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 that and the drop in the fertility rate and and the children out of marriage this this whole picture of the destruction of the family i think is directly caused by the model that is constantly pounded into our heads that says there are no obligations except for the ones that you 
as an individual consent to. And at every single point during a marriage, people sit there saying, am I consenting to this? Am I consenting? You know, I can't. I, I no longer consent to this. Then the marriage is gone. Yeah, I have an alternative theory about it. Oh, I, okay. Uh, I, I, I'd like to hear the theory, but, but just to, sure. so, so the, the end of this is that as far as I understand, if you take the Bible, which used to give us um, uh, a foundation in these things, mm-hmm. in, in, in mutual loyalty, mutual loyalty in family, mutual loyalty in nation. You take the Bible, uh, you erase it from the culture, you erase it from education, and then you replace it. I mean, there's a vacuum. So what do you replace it with? I think it's being replaced by this in, this extremely flawed uh, Enlightenment rationalist philosophy. And, and the consequences are everywhere. It destroys every institution that it touches which is which is based on mutual loyalty because people say why well, who told me i need to be loyal mm-hmm. okay so a couple things one i agree with you to a certain extent that much of what Locke writes does not hold up in a historical or a sociological or anthropological sense uh, starting with the social contract thing i don't necessarily agree that it is taught as as if these are axiomatic mathematical proofs you know the people who quoted Locke the most in the founding era were actually pastors, and they certainly did not believe that we were all purely rational creatures without mutual obligations to each other and to God. Right, and that's part of my problem is that if if, if these ideas are so Lockean po- ideas are so poisonous, why did it take so long for the problems that you're pointing to to manifest themselves? Since every generation, you know, starts from essentially from from scratch, I would argue that. I, I think because because the 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 biblically based Christian culture was holding it in, in place. place. Yeah. So I would argue. I mean, I, I love intellectual history, but one of the places I'm moving to in my own personal journey is away from putting too much emphasis on the importance of political philosophy. I still think it's important. I just don't think you know, this is something Patrick Deneen does. And I, you know, I love this. I love these sort of connect the dots origin story things. You know, I love, you know, it's one of my favorite arguments, which I think you get from Vergelin and from, from Richard Weaver is that all of our problems can be traced back to Joachim of Fior, the like ninth century Gnostic monk. Um, I love that stuff, right? I mean, it's, it, to me, it's, um, it's, it's, it's like origin stories in comic books. I love that stuff. But I would argue that, and I've argued this for a while, is that one of the problems that conservatives broadly understood, or intellectuals, but really conservative intellectuals, uh, because there's a whole other thing going on, on the pragmatic side of it, uh, on the left, we like to have arguments with thinkers because you can argue with Nietzsche and you can't argue with a Buick, right? And there are technological things, you know, first of all, just the expansion of life expectancy, that we weren't kind of wired to spend as much time married to one person because one of us was going to die or both of us were going to die pretty young. The fact that women's liberation, which I think on the whole is a very good thing, right, comes in part from the lack of necessity for someone to be home all of the time doing the incredibly hard work that was once required to keep a family going. And so, and then you have what I think is, I think the far more pernicious ideas in our culture aren't Lockean ideas. I mean, the people who are talking about Locke tend to be Tea Party types, right? The people who are, it's the, uh, it's very much more of a, I mean, I don't want to sound pretentious, but it's a Rousseauian, Nietzschean idea that sovereign will, that my individual will is the ultimate arbiter of all things, that my feelings are a better guide 
of right and wrong than any external authority, that's not coming out of the Locke tradition. That's coming out of the sort of romantic tradition. And this is one of my problems just to bring it back to nationalism. There's a reason what you get nationalism in part as this riot against – neo-nationalism as you call it – as this riot against the French Enlightenment that was – you know, in Germany, it was imposed at at gunpoint, essentially, first by the revolutionary armies who saw themselves as the the new Israelites, and then by Napoleon and his armies. And so you go back and you read Ficht and those guys, they and Herder, right? You know, they're talking about spit out that vile slime of the Seine and start speaking German for Germans and all that. And so the parts about nationalism that I don't like, and I, I'm not, you're you're clearly not part of this, though I think a lot of people are using your stuff in this effort. Is its romantic nature, is this idea that, you know, uh, nationalist movements, and I, I still think by my understanding of what nationalism is, it is obvious to me that both Italian fascism and, and, and Nazism were nationalist movements. Um, they were not tradition-based movements by any stretch of the imagination. The Nazis hated religion. I wrote a book that got deep in the weeds on all of this. Um, but they were bought up in this sort of populist notion of the the importance of the collective, the spirit of the group. And I think it's perfectly fine in for your argument to say, well, the second you start invading other countries and trying to impose your will, you're doing bad things. That's great. But – and I agree with you. But when you are in a nationalist movement which says everyone has to subsume their individuality to a larger abstraction – uh, whatever label you put on it, things like going across borders are very hard to stop because of the internal logic of these things. And so one of the great things about the Anglo-American tradition is that we actually the – the, the, the fundamental hero of the, in the Anglo-American tradition is still the individual, right? It's the individual actor and that when he does – when we do heroic things together, it is to a certain extent by consent and by commitment to, to larger causes. And I'm very much against the cult of unity, and I think it can lead to really dangerous places. And so, uh, you know, this, the, 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 just to tie it back to Locke for a second, you know, it seems to me that the Lockean, the extent of Locke's influence in the American culture is not these formalistic mathematical proofs. It is this more poetic thing about the individual sovereign. The fruits of his labors belong to him. The, the government, you know, works for us, we don't work for it. And I think those are laudable and lovely ideas, even if metaphysically or whatever, Locke falls short of, of proving them. Because at the end of the day, it's a leap of faith to have the kind of system that you want to have, whatever system it is. I think that if if our goal is to um, to encourage that part of English, Scottish, American national history um, that that leads to all the kinds of freedoms that that we believe in I think if that's that's our goal then realistically looking at the course of the culture since World War II um, since the beginning of the attempt to completely replace the biblical national foundation and 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 establish it on only, rationalist enlightenment philosophy. I, I I think the correct way to understand what happened is that there was a very fruitful and creative tension among these different components. And what's happened is that Locke, who used to be one part together yeah. together with 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 the the common law the, the 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 common law constitutional tradition with the biblical religious tradition, 
used to be, and 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 the Scots who are empiricists and certainly not Lockeans. Mm-hmm. What has happened is that Locke has intellectually conquered all, and when and I, I definitely agree with you that the further left you go, the the more you feel Nietzsche as opposed to Locke. Mm-hmm. But I, but I guess together with with Denine, I I think that the boundary between the two is. Uh, often overblown because the uh, 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 Kant is is still clearly within w- w- within the, the 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 tradition of the atomic individual and his reason and mm-hmm. and, and so on and, and yet it's Kant who is the inspiration for the the self determining mm-hmm. you know the, the wildly self determining romantic in, in, in individual uh, take Nietzsche. As a reader of Emerson, right? This is like a fam- famous thing. What is what is Nietzsche finding in Emerson? It, it's it's not true that 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 the, the, that these German the, the German romantics and relativists who who, who reach this kind of megalomaniacal uh, status for the individual are are doing so um, uh, as an alternative to the the Lockean atomism. They they are developing Lockean atomism to its uh awful awful extreme conclusion and why should why should we be focusing on that we have such a wonderful tradition in the english speaking west such a wonderful tradition of thinkers who are who are not these mechanical rationalists who don't do these these crazy abstractions of of all of political reality down to a certain thing I, i'm not i'm not trying to eliminate Locke. i i want it Locke and his and his cohorts pushed back into the position of one stream among among, uh, among four or five really important ones. I'm in favor of that too. And it's one slice of the portfolio. Uh, well, yeah. I'm sure we'd be healthy if it were one yeah. slice of the portfolio. No, I think that's entirely fair. And um, I, I'm a, I'm a believer that there's a close link between sort of Emerson, Thoreau, and um, and even sort of William James and Dewey and uh, Heidegger and Nietzsche. Uh, Rorty makes kind of this point at one point about how what Nietzsche is doing is very similar to what the pragmatists were doing. He was just philosophizing with a hammer while the the, the pragmatists used a razor, but their same approach. You know, William James was a um, big fan of the Italian pragmatists who led to the rise of fascism and all the rest. And it's this idea that we can reason our way and will power our way in, in into remaking the world in whatever image that we want. And I think that's a huge problem. I agree. And it, it's particularly a problem because it's so poisonous to people at the ground level, how to actually live your life. You actually – there no man is an island. You need family. You need the microcosm of community. And if you don't have it, life is miserable. But anyway, I want to thank you very much for coming. We went very long. This is – this is almost uh, Russ Roberts territory in length. Um, and uh, I got a whole bunch of stuff I got to do. So thank you, Yoram Hazoni. The name of the book is The Virtue of Nationalism. Thank you very much for having me. We're all very different people. We're not Watusi. We're not Spartans. We're Americans with a capital A, huh? All right. So Jack is so furious at me for going so long. He's sitting there just fuming. Uh, my apologies to listeners who, ha- who, well, if you stayed this long, that means you actually liked it. So I guess I got to apologize on the next pod, at the top of the next podcast, the people who couldn't make it all the way through. I still had a lot of stuff to talk to him about. 
I really like Yoram. He's, he's a really interesting and fundamentally decent guy. I just, there was a slipperiness to some of his arguments that I, I'm not saying he was trying to be evasive, but he's got this notion of nationalism that is a little independent of where the actual, I think, the larger debate is. And that's not a problem for him because he wrote the book that he wanted to write. And, um, but I wanted to mix it up on a couple other things and he just wouldn't take the bait sometimes, which was frustrating. But I thought it was really interesting. And so we went into like insane long Russell Roberts territory on this one. And my apologies to people um, who were offended by that. But as you know, it's my podcast. So uh, with that, Jack won't even talk. He refuses to turn on his microphone. He's so mad. Thanks for tuning in. Maybe we'll uh, have another one this week. It doesn't look like it, though. But then again, you got plenty of podcasts here. Please review us at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever fine podcasts are heard. Our Twitter feed is at Jonah Remnant. Email is theremnantpod at gmail.com. Uh, I'm Jonah Goldberg, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.